Hola oyentes, mi nombre es Fiorella Pinillos y este es Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy Podcast. Below the Radar is recorded in the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In this episode of Below the Radar, Paige Smith and I are joined by Brandon Yang, the new executive director of Out on Screen. We chat about Brandon's work in film education and supporting queer youth, as well as how his journey with his own identity has shaped his career. Que lo disfruten. Welcome to Below the Radar, Brandon. We are really, really happy to have you here. And for those of you that don't know him, Brandon Yang is an activist, advocate, and educator. And he's also the new executive director of Out on Screen. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. We're so happy to have you, Brandon. Brandon, could you start just by like telling us a tiny bit about yourself? Sure. So I am the, you know, brand spanking new executive director of Out on Screen. Our mission is to illuminate, celebrate, and advance queer lives through film education and dialogue. And we fulfill our mission through two core programs, one being the Vancouver Queer Film Festival, which is uh, just finished its 30 first year 32nd year <laughs> sorry it's, <laughs> it's been a year like what is time and then uh are also our out in schools program which has been running since 2004 so i've been without on screen for actually a number of years in different roles i think this is my coming up on my sixth year with the organization but uh, i grew up in langley in metro vancouver and you know live most of my life in the lower mainland except for a few years where my family decided it was good to move to the Caribbean, uh, which is a weird thing that my family did. Oh, wow. And then I did my master's degree at SFU, which is where uh, I met you. Um, <laughs> and also I, I met Paige actually at Out on Screen as well. So we, we met, as you said, uh, when we were doing our urban studies masters. And when I met you, you were like a vocal young urbanist with like strong opinions. And like, <laughs> I remember you had this Twitter account, pre-planner. You know, I just remember your journey from being like pre-planner to like new persona, citizen young activist and, you know, educator mm -hmm. and advocate. And um, it was quite a, quite a journey. So could you just uh, tell us a little bit about your journey? Pre-Planner was born from a blogging project that I had called Master's Planning. And so this was, I think, probably in 2009, I want to say. Um, so I, I, I finally finished my, my bachelor's degree uh, in history at UBC, I think, in 2009. It took me about five or so years. And being unemployed and like <laughs> frustrated with job prospects, I was like, I guess I'm going to do a master's degree because no one's looking at my resume and I'm annoyed. And it became kind of an economic imperative to do another degree. And so I, in my, my history degree, I, I became really interested in urban planning from a historical perspective of understanding why a lot of our social issues exist the way they exist now. Growing up in Langley, seeing the way in which the suburban environment was manufactured, this ideal of, you know, the nuclear family and, you know, everyone has a car and a garage and this idyllic setting. And anyways, I just kind of got really interested in, in where those ideas had come from and decided to apply for urban 
planning programs because I was really interested in the urban form and a lot of those issues. I, anyways, I applied for the, those programs and, and got rejected from all the schools that I applied to. <laughs> and so I doubled down and I uh, started a blog basically out of um, kind of sitting down with myself and being like, is this, if this is something I really want to do, how do I show that I really want to do this? And how do I also not waste this time between applying for school? And so I really wanted to do a lot of self-education and self-learning and um, starting a blog, writing about urban issues was really a key way to do that. And I also went to a lot of the free lectures at SFU, which is not a plug for SFU, but the fact that um, there's a lot of free education out there was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gordon Price led a lot of those lectures um, or invited guest lectures to SFU. And it was just a really great way to connect also with like kind of the quote unquote urbanist clique <laughs> in, in Vancouver. Uh, and then finally got into SFU's urban studies program, which was a great fit because of it being part-time. So I could work full-time while doing my master's for the most part. And, um, even though I got in by the skin of my teeth, like they, they, I applied for the master's and they put me in the diploma program being like, we don't really trust you with a master's <laughs> degree, but I, I actually really enjoyed, um, the urban studies program because it's, um, was a bit more radical than I think I was expecting in many respects, not all respects, but um, it really taught me more about um, social justice, um, feminism, intersectionality, those, the kind of issues that are, I think, traditionally missing from a lot of planning schools or institutions. Um, And that's kind of like where Citizen Yen was born was like this idea of throwing away, like, I actually don't really want to be an urban planner, (laughs) Uh, that kind of top-down approach to, to how we navigate cities. Um, and so Citizen Yan was kind of a, just a, yeah, a quote unquote rebranding of just like, I just don't really want to be a planner anymore. Um, and also taking cues from uh, one of our former city councillors, Andrea Reimer. I think her Twitter handle might've been Citizen Andrea, maybe. Oh. Um, so yeah, taking cues from folks like that around just like their, you know, the way they approach, I guess, their persona online as well. Um, not being restricted to this idea of just urban planning or urbanism. Another moment I remember was um, when in your professional life, when you moved from like, you know, Lululemon to like yeah. <laughs> employee, <laughs> the yeah. foundation, um, yeah. you know, where you had a desk job. And, and then when you moved to actually finally to, I think schools um, and moved to just to go talk to kids in around BC and give presentations mm. about queerness and, and feeling good about that and, you know, proud. So yeah. Can you tell us about your journey? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, so yeah, referencing my former, former, former job at Lululemon, uh, it was weird. Cause like I have no background in human resources or, uh, computer systems, but I was hired to do, <laughs> both those things uh, at Lou Lemon's head office. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very, obviously a very interesting place to work, but definitely not the the work that I really wanted to do. Um, I've always been drawn to more community driven work. And so when the opportunity at Vancouver Foundation came up, um, I was really excited and stoked. And like anyone who knows moving from more of a corporate world to a nonprofit world, like there's a, you know, there's a trade-off in usually salary. And that was also the case. Um, but I got hired at Vancouver Foundation to be a grant administrator in children, youth and family granting, which is kind of where I got involved in 
out in schools, I met a lot of folks who were applying for grants and kind of got uh, more involved in the nonprofit sector as the person, you know, like a lot of the first point of contact for people applying for funding. But I also, um, my my boss there um, and my manager, so um, B. Nguyen, uh, who is, was the director of Children, Youth and Family Granting, and then Nicole McClellan, I met those two people who I think were really instrumental in also some additional um, understandings of the way the nonprofit sector works, but also way it should work. They became really important mentors in, in my life. And V has always been a, a guiding star in the way I think uh, a director or a boss or you know a human being should behave and act and encourage their employees and the people in their lives. And so there have been some, I guess, decisions made at Vancouver Foundation that I disagreed, disagreed with, and I was not uh, unvocal about them. Uh, and basically, uh, Jen Sung, who had been working at Out in Schools, was moving on from her position, and there was an opening, and um, I applied and went through the interview process and, and got the job. And throughout this, like V was always very supportive. Yeah, my I, I've just been very lucky with bosses in that sense of like everyone being kind of really supportive and encouraging me to take on these new new endeavors despite challenges. And so I started with Out in Schools and took what I learned at Vancouver Foundation, working directly with youth on things like our Youth Philanthropy Council and Fresh Voices and ran the education program for Out, in, out on Screen, which is Out in Schools and got to kind of delve deeper into my personal journey with talking about sexuality and gender and and how it intersects with also race and culture. And um, and that's been a very fulfilling path so far and continues to be so. We wanted you to maybe just describe in general what Out in Schools does and mm-hmm. um, like maybe with that, what sort of impact you've seen with your work in Out in Schools and then maybe more broadly the film festival and everything. Mm-hmm. Sure. So out in schools, I mean, just to go back to its kind of inception in 2004. So the Queer Film Festival happens in August every year. And so unlike a lot of other major film festivals in the city, it happens actually not during the school year. Uh, and so it was always a, a lost opportunity to bring and connect with queer youth because um, festivals like VIF or DOXA hap- usually happen in the fall and in the before times when we could gather in a theater, um, teachers could basically sign up and bring their whole classrooms into a theater to watch a screening of something. Um, that was never the case for the, the Queer Film Festival. And so Out in Schools basically started as kind of like this opportunity to bring queer film to schools. And we basically kind of created a few programs that teachers could connect with. And I think in the first year, Out in Schools did like something like eight presentations, which was huge at the beginning. Because again, this is before, this is even before gay marriage was, or queer, like, you know, gay marriage was legal. because It was legalized the, the year after. And then to did it like today, like, uh, or I'll be, again, in the before times when we were traveling around the province, um, we've been to almost every single school district now. Um, we're still, I think, shy of about two to three school districts where we've never been before. Um, we had had those school districts lined up before the pandemic, but alas, uh, plans changed. And essentially what Out in Schools does is it still brings queer film into, into schools, into classrooms. But what's changed a bit is that we do a lot more dialogue, a lot more conversation, a lot more question asking. So it's not your typical don't like anti-bullying presentation. It's not your typical like let's just, you know, gender sexuality 101. It really weaves 
queer art into uh, the framework of how we talk about gender sexuality. And what this does, I think, is opens the, the, the gates to empathy and to curiosity, but also in many ways to, to, to let, let, let a lot of students who might not be queer see kind of like a, a non-stereotyped version or vision of what queerness can look like. And in many ways, it's like, it's kind of boring. <laughs> like it's, you know, we're many times it's it's also just like really joyful and we also wanted to change that narrative where a lot of I think mainstream queer film tends to be quite tragic um, and sad and so when queerness is usually created for straight audiences the way they try to hook people in is through usually through tragedy um, the idea that you want to create that kind of like they want to create sympathy rather than empathy. Like, like, look how, look how these poor LGBT people are treated. We should treat them better. But it's actually more about like, there's actually such more breadth and depth to being queer or trans or two-spirit or non-binary or asexual that doesn't get, you know, showed in typical mainstream productions. And so, yeah, that was always our, our hope is to bring queer joy also into classrooms and to have that be the focus of our attention because you know, I think again, like a lot of the old school presentations, I think that existed before my critique was that it, it assumed that no one in the classroom was going to be queer. It assumed that no one was going to be seeing those depictions because I think if you, if you could continually show people tragedy, like it, it frightens people. <laughs> like, yeah. this is what my life is going to be like, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen to me if I come out. And it's also to acknowledge like tragedy obviously continues to permeate the queer and trans community, especially Black, Latinx, trans women of color. But we also wanted to produce, you know, this idea that, you know, change is possible and um, hope exists as well. And so that, it was kind of like how I, how I saw the program and how I use the program is showing, um, like we show a film called, um, or a film around like a trans Korean American swimmer like uh, Skylar Baylor and how he's overcome his challenges and had a very supportive family. So like when we show these presentations to parents, it's like, look at the difference like a supportive family can make to a young person's life, right? And that's also showing the transformation, I think, for adults who at the beginning were maybe not so supportive to afterwards and, and how that can definitely change the trajectory for that child's um, path. You know, it continues to transform based on the, the issues at hand um, and and what's going on in the world because I think what's happening, young people don't have a dearth of information available to them. They actually have almost too much information. And so what we try to do is we come into a, a school and we also like be in that place of curiosity, ask those questions. Um, and sometimes like we also preface like we won't be offended because I think that I think what most people are afraid of is actually saying something wrong. And we will always acknowledge that like, maybe that's not the best way to like frame that question. Here's why um, it's, you know, being open to, to those things and, and also being that space where young people can ask questions or answer questions. Cause it's also really cool when you ask a question about queerness or transness and a young person in the audience can answer the question and with confidence and then their peers see them as kind of this idea, oh, I can go to them if I have questions or I know that they're a safe person I can talk to. And so it kind of also generates that atmosphere as well. This makes me so happy to hear. Like, I wish so desperately that they had had, that my school had had that presentation when I was a kid, that it sounds so awesome. 
I love what you guys do. <laughs> it's, it is really like, I, again, this is like kind of why I stuck with this work is it's, it is really impactful and you don't always get to see the results of your work. But I think um, we did actually connect with Elizabeth Sawick and the UBC School of Nursing um, and Saravik. They basically, what they did was they looked at Out in Schools data since 2004 of where we've been, how many presentations we did. And they looked at the adolescent health survey um, that they do. It's almost like a, a teen adolescent uh, census they do every few years in schools. And they basically looked at their data and our data and where we've been and saw a correlation and some connection between where we've been and actually an improvement in school atmosphere for folks who identified as queer or even young girls and like reduction in things like drinking or like wow. bullying and whatnot. And so um, there is that study available, which is like a very nerdy, impactful thing that we do. But there's also the anecdotes. I mean, I remember my first presentation in a place like Gold Trail. Um, and after, like, it was literally like, I was like brand new to the job. And I will never forget the moments where a young person comes up to you and like is almost afraid to say what they want to say, but all they say is thank you. And it's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's just like, those are the moments where you know that like they're processing something and, you know, again, it's like they never, they never got to see something before and now they've seen it and, and now they're able to kind of like move forward, I think humble brag also is that out in schools has been very instrumental in provincial policy as well. In, in the last year, I think of the BC liberal government a few years ago, they passed a ministerial directive in making sure that schools have a sexual orientation, gender identity policy. Um, Cause in BC, all those policies are school district by school district. So there's no, there's no kind of overarching provincial policy. And that was one of our goals was to get a provincial policy protecting queer and trans kids in schools. And we were able to push that forward. Um, we even basically wrote the directive uh, and some of that, and some of that, that policy, um, we worked with like the BC um, Teachers Federation. We worked with the ARC Foundation. Um, we worked with UBC. Like we, we worked collaboratively with a lot of organizations um, to, to push forward policy change and we got it. Um, and that's been really, really key, I think for, a lot of our work that um, has happened over the last few years. That's really amazing. Yeah, yeah it was kind of like a, um, a fairly new piece to Out in Schools as it grew. Um, like again, when I started with Out in Schools, it was just me as a program coordinator <laughs> running the whole show. And then uh, we added staff, like we brought Gavin in, I moved into a director position, which actually allowed us to do more policy work. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, because I think what, the old program model was all about enabling change with young people, but it's like those people come and go through the school system, but actually what you need to do is think about it from a systemic level, like, oh, well, teachers, teachers are actually the, the environment creators and like the policy, like the, the administrators are also the environment creators. So what we need to do is also focus on the adults in the room who are gonna be there for maybe 10 years or 20 years, however long their teaching career is, to give them the tools and resources to support the queer and trans youth who come through their classrooms. And then how you do that is also by, you know, bugging the people who are in charge of policy and like government. And, and that was also just really an interesting process to go through, I think, um, learning how government works and who to talk to and, you know, who's like, 
you know, this person's the minister, but actually you want to bug this person and like yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ins and outs of like, um, yeah, advocacy in that way. That's really, yeah, that's really incredible that you were able to like actually achieve um, something like that in BC. Yeah, it's like, the, I think the, the the ministerial directive was important. It basically updated um, each district's code of conduct, but it doesn't necessarily create resources. It doesn't necessarily direct teachers. Like for instance, I think when you are, training to become a teacher in BC. I think like even just the module on LGBT, whatever is like maybe a day. So it's like, and, and there's a lot for teachers to learn too, right? So we're, we're understanding that obviously being queer is also like, it's a bigger issue than just learning one module one day in teacher training. And there's also intersections to queerness too. I think one big thing we're trying to push now is how do you, how do you bring culturally relevant queer transness also into the picture as well? Because um, there's no one way to be queer trans um, or true spirit as well. So it's like when we traveled into a district, which is like primarily indigenous young people, making sure that we have indigenous facilitators also bring their experience, as, you know, there. It's, it's also that kind of connection as well. So it's not just like one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Stepping to a new note, we wanted to ask a little bit more about the festival. Mm-hmm. Just now that you're the executive director of Out on Screen, you know, there's the festival component and the Out in Schools component. So with the festival, as someone who really loves the festival and has attended and everything, I one of the things I really love about the festival is this ability to feel like connection through mm. the events and the screenings. So this is kind of like a a tougher question, but like, how did you folks deal with that this year with everything being online and everything? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like we're still processing it really, but I think we, we were, I think one of the earlier festivals to kind of have to digitize. I mean, I think Doxa was before us, or at least they delayed their festival to the point where I think it happened also around there. And so we also learned from looking at other people doing what they were doing and kind of like taking ideas and but the connection part is definitely important i think our festival like a lot of smaller film festivals in the city are based around a community or identity or a common experience whereas if you look at something like viff viff is like your film film lovers you know festival it's your people go there because they love film not necessarily because they are a certain way or you know have a common experience um which is not a, a diss on viff it's just like I just noticed as someone who helps run VQFF and uh, is part of VQF, a different vibe when I go to a VIF screening. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very different vibe. VQFF always feels like a reunion every time you go to a screening, like people chatting. It's it's, um, a lot of people don't always celebrate pride in the same kind of like mainstream way. And they find other ways to do that. And the film festival is one of those ways. And so for us trying to find the ways in which we can keep those connections going was difficult given the limitations of digital transmission, I guess. Um, Cause it's like, what makes us different than Netflix? If we just become a streaming platform, you know, what makes, what makes a film festival different than whatever, if it's, if, all it is, is just video on demand now. Um, and we still haven't cracked that, I don't think. But I think what we tried to do was we did things a bit differently. We didn't do video on demand. We had set screening times like a traditional festival did and people loved it or they didn't. So in many ways, it 
it created that same schedulness that a festival creates. So you kind of have to actually plan your evening. People love that during the pandemic. We heard some feedback that actually made me think about like what I wanted to do and plan ahead and made me actually like some people gathered in their backyards for the projector and they sent pictures. It was really cute. Um, and so we love that aspect of it, of people actually creating their own screenings in their own bubbles. And then, you know, the other limitations of a festival normally is like people have schedules and like they have kids and like they might not be able to make the seven o'clock screening. Um, and by the time, you know, they realize there's a screening, it's too late. Right. And so they might miss their chance to watch something. And so there is that trade-off of, of, of programming in that, in that respect. We also at the beginning of the year didn't know what <laughs> this year would look like. So we planned pretty conservatively. We, we screened only half the number of films we normally would connecting with artists was difficult, especially for live Q and A's because they're around the world and like trying to line up times where they could live chat was difficult. So we, pre we pre-recorded a bunch of things, which I think also limited interaction with our audience. They couldn't ask a question in the moment and have it answered. Yeah. It, I, we're still figuring it out. I think we're about to go into our planning process for next year. And I think we're, we're open to new ideas. And I think that's the thing for us is like, we've been running a film festival that's been pretty much run very similarly for the last three decades. And this last year was the first time we've had to think um, in a, a wholly new way. Um, we knew there was going to be a day where we had to do online screenings. Um, yeah. We knew that day was coming and it was kind of just forced upon us uh, last year. <laughs> but the, the weird thing too, is like when you're, I mean, this is a, this is in the minutia, but like, you know, we, when we, we book venues, like we're actually spending about the same amount of money on technological platforms as we would on a physical venue. Oh, wow. Um, so, so, so there's really not like a cost savings from a festival perspective that way. I mean, QFF has always been interesting in that we don't, we like our whole, Stick is also around access. So we, we give a lot of our tickets away for free. We typically try to price a lower or a tiered rate than other festivals. And we also don't like charge more for different events. Like you would pay the same ticket price for our opening night gala as you would for any other screening um, where other festivals tend to tier up as well. Um, but yeah, it was also just like hard to figure out ticket pricing for digital. Cause I think we were talking about it, you know, we're not, we, we were like, well, we're not a streaming platform. So we're not going to go with the Apple like rental video of like three ninety nine Cause like, there's also a, a way to want to respect the artists as well of like, you know, we're not just a service renting their film. Like we're, we're showcasing their arts. We want to be able to pay our artists. We, I think also, we also are one of the few festivals that pay short, short filmmakers. You are, you are one of the only festivals that does it. And it's amazing. <laughs> All festivals should do that. <laughs> like, I know it's not a lot of money, but like I, when I heard like this year, this year was the first time I realized that we were one of the few festivals that paid short filmmakers. I'm like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like, I think that's also like, we, you know, we, I mean, and I also as incoming executive director, like there are lots of shifts and um, pushes and pulls in the nonprofit sector in general and the art sector, obviously right now, I think Vancouver's arts scene is undergoing a lot of transformation, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, and, you know, we want to be part of that positive change too. Like, I think there's lots of things we can continue doing and I think there's some things we can do differently, but uh, the way I tend to work is a bit more collaborative, as, you know, as like, I think that we're going to have to be moving forward. And our, our 
you know, our organization kind of straddles both like the queer serving, like, you know, community, but also the arts community. And sometimes those things are slightly different. And so figuring out ways in which those can all work together is really, really key. Um, but yeah, we, that technological divide is just a hard one. Um, we, we tried really hard um, to figure out ways in which we could maybe provide like laptop rentals or free internet, or even like, uh, like uh, uh, offsite screenings that would be safe yeah. um, for folks who don't have the technology or the setup. And it just as COVID progressed, it became clear that that was not going to be a safe way to, you know, operate. Um, and we're still not sure. I mean, we just actually did our first drive-in screening uh, at the end of October, which went really well. It was Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and it was like 50 cars max. So maybe 200 people or so. Um, but everyone was in their own cars and was very spaced out. And it was just like to be watching a film together and hear people laugh and to hear people scream, hear people clap. People got out of their cars to do the time warp. And I'm like, this is like, this is like why we have film festivals, you know, like it's. That it's, sounds so magical. It felt so magical after being so um, isolated, I yeah. think, from what we do normally, because again, it's like, there's Netflix and I love Netflix. I love the accessibility of Netflix, but it can never replace that feeling of being in a, in a packed theater of people laughing or crying or, you know, shouting together about a common experience. So it's just hard. It's so hard to replicate. And like, well, I'm excited. I'm excited for like the, the, the new year and how you reimagine the, the, the experience. Yeah. Even out in schools too, like we're, you know, it's hard to deliver a presentation like we used to. And actually like I've, I put it forward to both the film festival and the out in schools program as your new executive director, like think bold because like the, like we don't, like there's nothing holding us back from changing anything now because we don't, like there's probably no way we can deliver in-person programming again next year based on where we are today. Um, and so we're kind of like, we're, untethered from a lot of those expectations. So like maybe out in schools doesn't do presentations the way we used to do. Maybe we start creating content. Maybe we commission filmmakers to do content. Like, you know, it's like our, our mission isn't very specific to the program, right? Like our mission is very broad film education dialogue. It's not like, it's not film festival school presentation. It's like, you know, I think nonprofits are also going to have to go back to their mission statement. Like it's, you're not, your programs aren't, your programs don't drive your mission. Your mission drives your programs. But yeah, you've talked about um, you've talked a bit about your your identity and how your own experiences growing up in Langley as you know queer biracial mm-hmm. kid you know really shaped um, your experiences now. Mm-hmm. And I just um, and I, I read your piece, the CBC article that you uh, published recently, and um, I was just so inspired by by um, some of the stuff that you mentioned about you know like that all that internalized racism that you felt growing up. Uh, I yeah, I just wanted to you to uh, see if you have any if you wanted to tell us a little bit about that <laughs> and your journey, you yeah. know, finding out your roots and connecting with your Chinese um, heritage. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it goes, it, it's so interconnected to the work I do now. I think growing up, usually the story tell of like the first time I remember being really attached to like a TV show was Queer as Folk, the UK version. 
which was definitely not meant for kids the age I was when I started watching that show. <laughs> and also like highly problematic now. Um, but, you know, watching a show where it was just about queer people, not just like the one gay person who happens to be there, um, who was a side character supporting, you know, other people was really instrumental. And then, you know, progressing from that, you know, never really seeing a lot of Asian or Chinese people at the time, I didn't care because it was one of those things where um, I think again, and like in the piece I wrote, like whiteness was like the goal or heteronormativity was the goal. And I think so, or at least that was something you were to aspire to. And, you know, and like little thoughts that kind of stick with me growing up around like, you know, why, why is my dad different than other people's dads? And, you know, my dad was, <laughs> you know, a, a, a Chinese immigrant who ran a, a business, a weird business in Langley. He ran a nightclub. Um, <laughs> and, you know, um, wasn't that stereotype dad on TV who would be like throwing the football around the field, even though I hated sports, but like one of those things weird, like I was supposed to like those things. Um, and it, it also just like shows the power of media to influence the way in which you see yourself in the world or your position in the world, right? never really wanting to know more about my Chinese ancestry at all, like zero interest whatsoever. Um, and even when I did my degree, my first degree in history, I, like I still didn't care about Chinese history. I still didn't care about like my entire degree was focused on like Canadian colonial history. And like, like <laughs> I'm so different from even just like 10 years ago about my mind view, my yeah, mindset and like who I want to be and whatnot. And SFU's urban studies program, again, there was a, a light bulb moment when I was in Matt Hearn's class on art, culture, and the city, um, a class that we took together, I think. And, <laughs> you know, and he made us read this paper by um, Iris Marion Young about the politics of difference. And even though I had thought I was a critical thinking person, I still had those thoughts when I went to, you know, the pride parade and whatnot of like, I like pride, like, I'm going to do this, but also like, I don't really understand why everyone has to be so outrageous and like, if you want to be taken seriously, why don't you act like a normal person? And I'm doing air quotes and reading that paper, like blew up my mind of like, what does it mean to be normal and why should your rights and um, how people treat you be based on your behavior or what you wear or your people's perceptions of you. Right. And I think it's like that kind of really was transformative for me of understanding um, you know, rights-based narratives and, and, and how we see movements like the feminist movement, um, the queer liberation movement, um, other, you know, Black Lives Matter and all these other really important social movements of our times. And so that was really important for me as another key turning point. Yeah. Also just like mortality, like, you know, our elders are getting older. Um, the stories that they could tell are disappearing uh, and, and feeling also sometimes a little, in some ways jealous of people who can like who know their ancestry of like where they come from and and who their you know who their grandparents are or who their great-grandparents were and I always knew my white history like I knew more about that than I knew anything about my Chinese history because I just didn't bother to ask um and also I think there's also that that element of immig immigrant uh, narrative where they don't want to talk about it because the whole point of moving sometimes is to assimilate and to adopt, you know, this new country and new way of being. And there's also probably lots of trauma in there. And so, you know, started asking questions when my dad was around and 
um, getting bits of pieces here and there of like who our family was before they moved to Canada. Um, and then in earnest, just doing some more research in the last couple of years, really. Because, yeah, again, um, my dad is almost 80. Yeah. Um, and he's like the middle child, too. So or like one of the younger kids. So my aunts and uncles are not getting younger and um, basically just wanted to reach out to them being like, hey, like, I actually know nothing about you. Like, I, I see you occasionally for dinners and whatnot, but I actually don't know what you do for a living, what you did for a living, where you went to school, where you grew up, what you think. Um, cause usually at the dinner table, they would always speak Cantonese with each other. Um, and us as kids not learning any Chinese would just sit there kind of like talking amongst ourselves. But you also started taking some, some Cantonese as well. Yeah. Um, I started, First, I, I, I really wanted to get into it, um, I think, a few years ago. Uh, I can't remember exact dates, but Vancouver Community College offers Cantonese lessons. And so I start, I signed up for lessons. And I remember going to dinner with my family and my dad was there. And I was like, hey, like, I'm learning Cantonese. And like, would try something. And my dad's response, like I said, in the, the, the thing I wrote for Species, was like, why would you want to learn such an ugly language? And that's like, that hurts so much. Yeah. Not because I like, not because I wanted him to be proud, but because I think, you know, what makes it ugly? Like, you know, the thing, the, the first couple of lessons I learned about Cantonese is like the way in which we greet each other um, in Cantonese is always like, which is like, I mean, I butchered the pronunciation of that, but it's, have you eaten? Like, it's not like, there's no it's not like hi how are you it's actually like have you eaten yet and the way in which we take care of each other through food is really you know i think a lot of the culture is built into the language and i think that's really beautiful from a nerdy perspective also like there isn't a <laughs> from an out in schools gender perspective there isn't he or she there's only like one there's like a just a, a it's a gender neutral pronoun it's basically they so it's I, it's I, you, they, um, but it is a gendered language in many respects, but like, it doesn't have a gender pronoun, um, which is really cool, which is also why a lot of elderly folks in my community mix up she and he interchangeably. Like they'll just refer to people as she or he, and they don't even care. Cause like in their brain, like it doesn't exist. Yeah. So it was in the, like, again, like, I think that's like, I, I, I am regretful I didn't learn earlier because I think again it's harder to learn a language as you as you get older but uh it's such an interesting language it like it really is like the tones is so interesting to me the way that a single word said six different ways is six different words which sounds really daunting I think for people who learn languages but I think it's just really I mean for me actually learning Cantonese felt easier than learning French because there weren't any, because there, there, there isn't really any tense to it either. So there's no, you don't have to change, the words don't actually change based on the tense. So mm -hmm. there's no like conjugation really. Um, again, I, this could also be wrong. <laughs> it's just like, I took a few <laughs> lessons and like now I'm an expert in Cantonese. But, but you know, I, I, I completely, I mean, my, my first language is Spanish. Uh, it, um, the listeners don't know but um, I'm raising my kids in in Canada and you know like language is super important to me you know to connect them to like my culture I guess my kids are um, half Peruvian half 
um, Canadian. And so like, yeah, like I like, try my best to like speak to them in Spanish. That's the way they, they are going to connect with their grandparents and cousins yeah. and, and the culture and like, you know, um, the story. So like, you know, it's, it's such an important piece. I don't want that to, to be lost. And so, yeah. you know, it's so important to just try to like keep that that the, that connection through um, the language and yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of like what I wish I had because um, growing up, like we would always every Sunday we would go to Chinatown to pick up my grandma. Well, we pick up up at her house and then we drive her to Chinatown and uh, we would go for go for lunch at Maxime's and um, and then my dad would like, you know forced me to go with my grandma shopping but she didn't speak and she she didn't speak any english and so it was always just awkward of me just like following her around carrying carrying these very heavy bags of oranges <laughs> so many oranges um because you know they would use the oranges for her shrines and then oh. you know she would she would also eat the oranges but you know i never never had a conversation with her ever you know because you know our the extent of our conversation was like she would say something in broken English and I would say something in butchered Cantonese, um, usually just thank you um, or um, happy new year, really. Um, those are kind of, those. that's the extent of the, the the Cantonese my dad would ever teach us. So, and I would probably also say like, it's, it's probably hard for parents to get your kids to do things that are probably going to be good for them later on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have no doubt that if my, my dad put us in some sort of Chinese school that I would hate it. Um, yeah. But it's like, yeah, I, 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 so I have a lot of empathy for, oh, for yeah. parents in that respect. Um, but yeah, it was, it's something I think I, I wish I would have had now, um, obviously. And doing family history and research is also just hard in a different language too. Mm -hmm. It's like, because Cantonese is also like a spoken language. It's not a, it's not a written language per se. Like there's not a huge connection between, um, cause you can, a lot of people can speak Cantonese, but necessarily don't know how to write in Chinese. It's, um, because it's not like a, a phonetic language, right? It's a character. So you have to be able to read the character um, to be able to understand the written aspect of, of Chinese. And so doing research is just like very hampered. Um, when people like use ancestry.com, I'm like, I have no idea if my records would be in here, which order they would put my, my grandparents' Chinese names in or English names. Because again, like, you know, they ha everyone has a Chinese name and then they have an English name. And like, who knows how they were written in the records and I love how in the article you wrote, you talked about the Chinese name that you have and how it was given to you by your grandma. That's so beautiful to me. Maybe you can like talk a bit about that as well. Yeah. It's something that I didn't really, I think growing up uh, knew a bit about, um, and my dad always referenced like Chinese names, but I never really asked what they meant. <laughs> uh, Cause again, I don't, don't know any of it. Um, but um again, once I got old enough to start asking questions, um, about things and he's like, oh yeah, your, your Chinese name, like if you break it down, it's like, yeah, Nimbun. And it's like, Nimbun means like, remember your roots or origins. Um, and to me, it was like, like, oh, like that's actually just way too like appropriate at the moment anyways. Um, but I think as the first or the eldest son born to, you know, her son, it was really important, I think, for her to like pre-pre-pre-plan that in my brain of like he's gonna want to know. He's gonna be he's gonna be the one that like uh, like somehow she knew this this young 
child is going to be the one that remembers our history and like writes it down and saves it. He'll lead the way. And so learning that was really, really cool. Um, and yeah, also just further grew my interest in our family history. And, and also like, that was kind of like, I think what I was trying to do was to, in, in my election campaign, having it, uh, my Chinese name be quite prominent in a lot of my my materials was also around like, I think showcasing to my father that like, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And also like this name means just, there's nothing, this name means just as much to me as my English name that I use more frequently. And also just like uh, an acknowledgement that like really only my family would use my Chinese name, right? Like it's, it's not a common name uh, that used among my friends, but like it's everywhere now that I like, it's on my email signature. It's in my Twitter handle. It's like, it was really interesting about bring, bringing my Chinese name into kind of my normal everyday life um, outside my family uh, was around seeing other people get sparked about doing the same with mm-hmm. a lot of their their names, especially folks who are come from a mixed heritage um, where they might have more than one name. And where also names are, again, like I know names mean something in all languages, but it's like really cool to me that like in Chinese, like the characters are specific like wishes or hopes like for your child too. That's so beautiful. With that, we wanted to talk a little bit about your journey into politics. So like you mentioned it with your name and everything. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what inspired you to run for city council here in Vancouver. And yeah, what what got you interested in that? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been a very politically minded person uh, in high school. Uh, I was the nerd who would read newspapers. Like I would... I would literally bring the newspaper to school and read it like during my break. Cause you I sound just, like a grandpa, just like I am a grandpa. Like I old beyond my years. Uh, and you know, I, I would write letter. I wrote a letter. I remember writing a letter to the defense minister, uh, Art Eggleton in the two thousands, early two thousands, um, about, Canada buying missiles. And I'm like, this is a bad idea. Like, <laughs> this is what I did in my spare time. Uh, you know, and also like, I think um, a product of also the generation of, uh, I remember when the BC liberals came to power for the first time and they cut education funding. And I, I was having none of it because it, like most things, when, when funding gets cut, it usually impacts arts first because arts, arts is seen as like a, you know, a nice to have, not a necessary. And so like, I was always, a, I was always a theater kid, surprise, surprise. Um, and so like those, those classes were impacted almost immediately based on funding cuts. And so got really interested in activism. Fast forward, I think into my adult life um, in Vancouver, being very involved in urbanism is also being involved in politics in Vancouver at least. And the time of the last civic election in 2018 was an interesting time in general because we had seen basically the implosion of the long-standing party vision Vancouver. Um, a lot of incumbents stepping aside, not running for a re-election. There was a, even most actually most of council was stepping aside for not running again um, on both sides. George Affleck also stepped down and wasn't going to run for a re-election. Uh, Elizabeth Ball, like there was a almost everyone on council was not running for re-election. Um, and why that was actually really important was because uh, incumbents typically are almost impervious to failure in some respects in elections in Vancouver. Um, just given the way our election system works at large, it's like, it's really hard to unseat an incumbent. 
And so when there are no incumbents, that's actually a really opportune time for change and for new people and new voices, uh, new experiences to, to try, to try to, to make it to council, put it out there on, on Twitter of all places, of course, like <laughs> of course, <laughs> if I were to run, which party do you think is Vancouver is a very party driven also civic system as well, um, which is unusual for the civic level in Canada, except for I think Montreal put it out there, like all the parties that I think I would align with. And one city reached out to me, uh, which was a fairly new progressive party at the time, um, kind of like a child born of both Vision Vancouver and also Cope. And, and those two parents were still angry about it. Um, <laughs> and I think still are, you know, the whole like splitting the left and all the things and, and whatnot. But I got to meet uh, Kara Ng and RJ Aquino. Um, we literally just went for coffee and they're like, hey, like we think you would be great. And like, also like, would you want to try for the nomination process? You know, and I'm like, okay, well, like, let me get involved and see what this is all about. And I really like that approach. I also like the fact that I met with two people of color, which is sometimes quite rare in politics. I mean, obviously we see Vancouver City Council, despite being all women, very few people of color, no, 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 no Asian people, despite a city being almost half, you know, of Asian descent. And uh, yeah, I tried there and um, got to know a lot of the folks running the campaign and one city at the time and probably still is, is mostly run by women, um, which is, which is, which is, it's a, yeah, I mean, it's quite rare for a political machine to be run almost entirely of women and felt like a good spot um, to get involved. And, but I think for me, it's always been a, I don't know, constant struggle of like internal debates around like, you know, who should be represented and whose voices are important. Um, and, you know, I think I made it clear to them also, like if there are other folks who I think should be, you know, more forefronted in 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 the nomination process like by all means like i have zero zero ego i know that like count, count like being a counselor is hard uh it's not like a, a job you walk into being like this is gonna be easy and like change is gonna happen because it's like it is democracy and it can be quite slow and painful um so i don't know and then i yeah uh won the nomination as kind of this newbie on the scene which is really cool along with Christine Boyle and um, Christine was like, just like the dream team. Like she super supportive and like, I mean, I taught her about Star Wars. Um, she didn't, she had never seen a Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm calling her out. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, anyways, but we had a good, uh, honestly, the campaign itself was, for the most part, pretty positive and, and um, fun. Um, even election night were uh, lost. Um, but the thing is like, I, I wasn't expecting a win to be honest, like, cause it's a first time running for council, a young person, a queer person, a person of color, like the odds are not usually pretty good. Um, but uh, yeah, election night was fun. It was really fun. And you're still recovering from-, from Oh yes. <laughs> Which is why I'm like, I don't know. I'm not really in tune with one city at the moment just because like I, yeah, I, and also taking on a, a, a much larger responsibility with the organization I am right now. It's like, you know, that is a lot of my focus and will be part of my focus for the next few years. So it's like taking responsibility seriously, you know? 
it's hard. It's, it's hard. Like when your work is social justice and very personal based to also be involved in other, other movements and processes that are also require kind of the same energy from you. It's all very passionate. <laughs> and it's exhausting. It's yeah. Oh yeah. I bet. <laughs> like if it was, just, if it was like a, if my day job was just me back at Lululemon doing like whatever, like I sh- I'm sure I would have energy outside of work to do those kinds of things. But when your work is also your passion, it's, it's hard to also do, a, a, I find it hard to do other things in addition to, in addition to work. That's why it's good you have a dog, because you can have your dog time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my dog is my therapy time. It's like <laughs> sitting right next to me sleeping. Yay. Um, when you were running you were, for your position in, with city council, mm-hmm. I remember you describing things like that were important to you, like radical transformation and, and justice and values turning your values into actions. Mm. How are you enacting those in your work today with out on screen and, and all the work that that encompasses? I mean, it's like, it's a, a driving force in the work that I, I want to do in both, I think both with politics and also with, I guess, my organization, which is also political. Um, and I think we're, when I was running for council, I think we had the op- like a great opportunity, obviously, to to push for more radical change, um, uh, especially the limitations. I think sometimes that exists at the civic level can be frustrating. Um, they still are frustrating, but with my organization um, and now being executive director, in many ways, I <laughs> I'm more powerful now <laughs> than I would be in council because I have control over, you know, what out on screen can be or how it can move mm-hmm. forward. Whereas on council, like, you know, I, I watch Christine and watch her struggle mm-hmm. with a council that is, you know, people like the idea of this, you know, independent counselors and everyone kind of being nonpartisan, but you watch and you actually, you can see the difficulty in that uh, of like actually trying to push through um, pop progressive change when, you don't have a party mechanism to get everyone mm-hmm. together to connect and collaborate in that sense. We're, but also like being an executive director is also, it shifts and changes over time. I think traditionally executive directors have always been very top down. They try to mimic almost corporations or companies in that respect. And I don't, I don't like to operate that way. And so it's my hope that we don't do that. Um, so there's a lot of, of, of conversation and change in the nonprofit sector around like, how do you flatten, you know, a, like a, a, a top-down organization? How do you make responsibilities and power more horizontal? Uh, how do you fundraise in an ethical manner? You know, these are all the conversations that I'm, I'm loving having right now. Um, I don't have any answers for these, but as, as we go into strategic planning for the end of the year, you know, we're reading things like, you know, what does white supremacy look like in uh, a nonprofit? Like, what does it mean... Um, how do we, how do we recognize those behaviors and how do we shift them? You know, and there are, are simple change, simple. I mean, there are changes we've made as an organization over the last number of years. Like we became a living wage employer. So our minimum wage is the same as the living wage um, organized by living wage BC. We make sure that when we do job postings, we post salary ranges. Um, We've removed a lot of the education requirements from job postings. You know, like there are things to make, your organization more progressive in a lot of those senses. So those are kind of like operational changes and 
fundraising as a big one. Um, there's a, a new grassroots kind of organization campaign called Community Centered Fundraising, uh, where they try to push for change in the fundraising aspect of things first. So nonprofits obviously rely heavily on fundraising, um, but I think, so it's important to actually make sure that our values align with the way in which we raise money. And it's, it's hard because we exist in a capitalist system and you, you know, I want to pay people well. And in order to do that, you know, you need money. And in order to get money, you need to do fundraising and sponsorship and, you know, all these interesting things that you have to do to, to be able to pay people to exist. And your programming too, right? Like your programming should be leading a lot of things. And I think in the past, I think our, our fundraising led a lot of our programming and it actually has to be our programming that leads our fundraising. So, you know, we should be forefronting the young people. We should be forefronting the artists and, and showing people those, those folks who are impacted by our work versus like, you know, um, throwing a big fancy gala, you know, like maybe there's a better way to do it than, than doing that. Um, we all love a good gala, but also like when you're charging $500 for a ticket, who, who can be there and who has access to that space. And those philosophical questions, I think we're going to be grappling with for the next little while. Um, and also we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so the nature of working has just changed dramatically too. Being a boss in a pandemic is a weird thing to think about. Like it's, you know, paying attention to public health orders and then having to go online and email your staff being like, Hey, this is the new protocol and um, you know, please be safe. And also like working from home is a challenge in the best of days, even though I think people dreamed of working from home before, but now it's like, I wish I had the option <laughs> to work in an <laughs> office. And yeah, my, my job isn't to make sure people are, are clocking in at nine o'clock and clocking out at 5 PM. It's just like more like, you know, are folks getting what they need to, to do what they need to do? Um, and I'm yeah still figuring a lot of those things out. Yeah. And I, I think for us as an organization, what I would love for us to be is like, you know, the kind of, we want to be role modeling, I think the behaviors in, in the arts sector or in the, you know, LGBT sector of how you can operate as a nonprofit, um, how you can operate as a, an organization in general. And so figuring that out is like kind of where I want us to be. It sounds challenging. It sounds like it's like it's so challenging, but it's like it's it's the exciting bit. It's like you know when you you <laughs> you get control um, and being able to work with your your board and your staff on these cool things of like wait like why have we done this before? Why like why are we doing it this way? Why haven't we done it this way? And it's like there's so many opportunities I think for really good change in the, in that way of like putting our values, our progressive values, into action in those ways. So like. You know, if we're if we're not the organization to do some of this work, like what are the partners that can do that? Like, for instance, there's the uh, they're called Sierra S E A R A, um, and it's basically a new kind of like grassroots organization trying to fund BIPOC artists um, who lost a lot of their income during the the, and so like supporting their work is really integral to supporting our mission of supporting artists. And so it's like you know there's we don't have to do everything. We can work in conjunction with other people doing the work too, right? So um, especially when it comes to uh, maybe experiences outside our immediate experiences of, of who we are as people um, at Out On Screen too. Well, it's been wonderful to have you. And uh, I feel like you've had such an intense 
last decade almost you know <laughs> like I'm such a such an amazing journey of like discovering and like changing and learning and um you know thank you for for sharing all this with us and uh, yeah it was a pleasure to have you here in Below the Radar yeah thank you thank you for tuning in to hear from our guest Brandon Young head to the show notes for relevant links to learn more hasta la próxima